This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. From Christianity Today, I'm Sandra McCracken, and this is The Slow Work. We are all creatives at heart, no matter what career or calling we find ourselves in. Inspiration can happen in a second, but the work of creativity only happens when we are patient enough to stay with it. It takes grit to see it through. I love hearing what it looks like for musicians, poets, painters, writers, and advocates. So I've been having conversations with them, and I want to invite you to listen in. As you do, I hope that your faith story gets tangled up in your work story and that your creative mind will be renewed by hope and possibility. My guest today is Sarah Groves, singer and songwriter and a longtime friend. I would love to just bring this conversation to your attention as one of my favorites around embodied ideas of social justice, not just as a concept, but as it really shows up in Sarah's real life. Some hearts are built on a floodplain. Keeping one eye on the sky for rain You work for the ground that gets washed away When you live closer So, you know, this is kind of a funny question to start with and you can take it for what it's worth, but how long does it take to write a song? Oh, (laughs) it really varies for me. Personally, I know everyone's different. Um, I'd, some of them just spill right out. I've had a couple where I woke up out of a dream and it, I dreamed the whole song and I run downstairs and the, you know, the whole thing kind of comes together. It's more of a picture that I'm you know, capturing. And then some take years. I've, I've always kind of fought my, my own brain in a way. Um, I have a lot of narrative about the what I should be doing and how I'm really falling short of that as a creative person. This time with my most recent project, I let myself wake up every day and kind of walk through a field lighting fires. And then the next day I would walk back through that same mental space and just see what had caught. So I was doing a lot more of observing and watching what what worked and what mattered to me, letting that sort of come up instead of having, it was a lot less my effort and a lot more Mm -hmm. roaming and seeing Mm -hmm. what, what bonfires were kind of like, you know, really like picking up. And and it was amazing to me how certain songs just sat down. They were not for now. They weren't going to develop and others, I would come back and, whoa, that thing had ignited. I would have had You know, I often lay things out on the floor and like hover over them and just see what sparks. So some songs came together quickly and others took uh, some time. That practice that we did together, the last time we were together, we were doing a writing practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have some narratives about my, that I don't work fast or can't work very fast. And that was really freeing and fun for me to write in the moment and then have 
not all of it worked, but, you know, a couple things were, I thought, oh, that really did spark. Why did I tell myself I couldn't write quickly like that or mm. be present yeah. like that? I know what you mean. There's this this group called The Fold where there's this practice of writing, creative writing without any judgment, without any kind of red marker, you know, <laughs> just recognizing that everyone has and affirming that everybody has this creative voice within us. And I remember your pieces that we, you know, it's like set a timer, write for 10 minutes, here's the prompt. And your pieces, they seem timeless and they seem like they had taken a very long time to, you know, they may have existed for a long time. <laughs> and maybe they, maybe in a sense when we do that, maybe they have existed, right? Maybe there are things within us that when you're hovering over the papers and starting these fires, these creative fires that maybe become songs, maybe there's something in that is that's very ancient that we are, that we're tending to or trying to bring out, you know? So it, if, if that's the case, it kind of takes the pressure off. And certainly being in that room, I was, I was intimidated by all the other people that <laughs> sitting in the circle that are uh, tremendous writers. And then you realize like we all have these sort of ancient fires within yeah. us. That's a beautiful way to say that. And I, I think initially intimidation and then just wonder. I mean, your, <laughs> yes. what, the things you were sharing as well. I, I just celebrated as you're talking, as you were sharing your pieces, thinking that's just in her. That just comes out like that. Look at what God does. You know? yeah, same. And each and heart reflected such a beautiful, different wonder in a different aspect. And really, really fun. And that, that was fun for me because I'm often now in a space, spaces with people who are maybe just starting that process. A lot of beginners. I do a lot of teaching songwriting with a wide range of people, but I often take the beginners when I'm leading like different groups with Art House. And so it was fun to be in a room of people where that gift has really been developed. Mm -hmm. And, and it's also, it's equally fun to be with people that are recovering something that maybe they did it in college and they were known for it at some point of maybe being songwriters. Um, I really respect what Leslie's doing at The Fold, and we're just continuing to connect uh, in ways we could bring some of those ideas to Art House as well, what we're doing up here in St. Paul. In 2011, Sarah Groves and her husband Troy bought an old church up in St. Paul and began the work that was actually already probably happening in their relationships and using this space as what they call creative community for the common good. What's unique about Art House North in St. Paul is creative writing classes, songwriting for beginners, not just established artists, which to me speaks to the nature of creativity, that it is such a shared human experience, that we are all invited into this process of creating, being co-creators with God who has put things in our heart and given us experiences that are unique to our own story and then invited us to share them with one another. So Sarah's life and work really reflects such a generous way of making art, and I think Art House North is one of the ways that I see that showing up in, in her life and in her community. She's actually thinking more broadly and deeply about what it is to be a human and to be a creative and how to share that, not just for ourselves, but with one another. 
So I love this image of how you're talking about your creative process, your, the way that you took the time and even just just embraced the spaciousness of these last few strange years and and troubling years in a lot of ways, but just saying, okay, let's just let's just live into this and pay attention to what is here for us and spread it out and, you know, tend to some fires. What are what is a what does it look like to teach this? Like if you were to take an hour with a young songwriter and say, okay, here are the matches here's the paper or the kindling, you know, here are Mm -hmm. the larger pieces of wood. Like, what does it look like to coach somebody through that? And, um, and then maybe give us a little backstory on how you got started doing this at Art House. Yeah. Um, I think that having worked with so many now burgeoning songwriters, so I'm in a, I'm in a town, you know, you and I both grew up in Missouri, um, in flyover country, you're more in a space where there's a pretty intense, you know, um, like LA, New York, Nashville, there's pretty intense creative community. And I'm uh, in St. Paul. It's not quite as layered as that as far as I mean, I have lots of friends who are in the arts, but there are just a lot of people. Um, creative community for the common good is the m- motto of Art House. And that's for Art House America, all the three locations. But with the songwriting stuff that we've done, and that's just one aspect of our art house life. But when I'm speaking with writers, there are a lot of patterns that are the same. Like you're trying to put three songs into one song, or you just sang this song and then I you tell me what it's about. And, you know, a lot of times we're just we're writing up here at the surface of of the story. It's actually really hard to be confessional. It's hard to tell ourselves the truth. You know, so for instance, I remember a girl wrote me, played a song for me about friendship. And it was very, you know, broadly about friendship. And then afterwards, she said, I meet with these friends once a year in Chattanooga and at this place called the, I can't remember, you know, the tickled pig or something. <laughs> and the story was so fascinating. And I just said, how can more elements of that story get into this song? We need to hear the, the word. We need to say Chattanooga. We need to say, mm, you know, yeah. maybe not tickled pig, but <laughs> <laughs> I just made that up. <laughs> yeah. Something like that. So I feel like, like you said, the stuff is in there. We never actually sit down to just a blank page. We are assemblers, curators. We're taking all the experiences of our life, Bob Dylan said in his chronicles, in his autobiography, that he said, we're, it's arrogance to say you've created something new. We're all standing on the shoulders of you know all the people that have come before us. And in his genre and folk music, they literally just take those same melodies and write new lyric over and over again. So he was saying, but what is unique about you is all of the the influences that you uniquely hold. And so when I'm working with someone, I'm usually trying to tap into all what are all those unique things that that make your make your voice and what you just said tap into those ancient fires that you have going on inside you. And I would say in a larger sense, that's what Charlie did for me at the art house when I first started working there to go to your other question. Um the art house here is based loosely off of the art house in Nashville. And you could go in Nashville a lot of places to find out how to advance your career or, or to kind of talk business. But the art house was where we would go to think about what does it mean to be human and what is my role as an artist and what could my advocacy look like. And so the conversations we were having at the art house were 
um, more broadly about our being and, and beautifully so. And when Troy and I, you know, 2011, we we asked Charlie, could we do something like this? We could call it something else, but could we kind of be under your broader umbrella? And, um, and so we bought an old church like Charlie had and I'm not Charlie and, and I'm not Andy. We're not the same, you know, people, but uh, we tried to let it grow and reflect the community we're in. And so we really, I think, try to reflect St. Paul, but with the same core value of creative community for the common good. And we do find ourselves here inviting your average person into creative process. And um, that that is a lot of what our work has turned out to be here at Art House. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. about Sarah's music is the way that she can put words to people's experience. She uses metaphor. She is trying to capture a moment that's a very human, present moment, and then put it in terms that we can understand. Putting the universe in a small container, I guess you could say. And I think wherever we are planted as people that are marked by the image of God, when we are Paying attention to our surroundings, we begin to notice things and then to take them to heart. And then we begin to speak back beauty and truth and goodness as we are made in God's image. And that's what I see as at the real center of, of Sarah's songwriting craft, how that plays out in the place where she is in St. Paul and in the social and political and relational parts of her story, it is coming out in what she's making. And I think that she really sets a tone for that. That is something that I've watched for many years and that I continue to learn from. And I, I think it's something that we can all share. There's such a refreshment to your creative work not being in Nashville. So we both collaborate together and have over the years, but there's something that I think we can both bring to that conversation because of the two different places. You've also been, I mean, St. Paul, it's no secret that this has been a hard couple of years. I mean, more than a couple of years as um, there's just a lot of, a lot of, of kind of emotional, political, racial upheaval that is all around you. I would, I would love to hear about like what, 
what does that feel like to be a, a neighbor and an artist and an activist and a mom right in the in this place? And how has that shaped your art? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I thought I was a justice-minded person. You and I have gone on t- entire tours committed to speaking about social justice. I have a lot of feelings about it, and we have witnessed a lot here. The, the events surrounding the murder of George Floyd were, um, they hit on, on many levels. First of all, again, like I said, I thought that I was really justice-minded. I had my eyes open. And just that entire experience, um, we lived at 42nd in Chicago. Those events took place at 38 in Chicago. So that was our neighborhood. We lived there for 10 years. And so we went over right away when, when, when things were, people were gathering and, and responding. Um, we went right away because that was, Cup Foods is a place where we would shop, you know, that we knew that whole area. And um, we just wanted to bear witness. I remember in those first days, Troy was just, get, he'd just jump on his bike to go ride around because the reports were so varying and we just saw so much um, in the, in the chaos, there was so much going on. And, and, um, but I think the over overwhelming message as we went to, to hear from different voices in our community was, um, the disparities here, uh, and I love Minnesota and have always been a, you know, a bit Leslie Nope about where I live. You know, I really <laughs> love it here. Um, but I, I knew there were gaps in education. I knew there were gaps in housing. I had no idea that there was genuinely a white Minnesota and a black Minnesota. The experience for black and brown people here was extremely different in the sense that all of those gaps were some of the worst in the country. So mm. you have narratives about what racism looks like and about the South and about our history as a nation. And so... Yes, I started a a new journey. Uh, I needed to listen to the voices in my community that had been doing this for a really long time. All of a sudden, I'm in front of mothers who have lost their sons, you know, in um, to violence and police violence in particular. Um, And I remember hearing one mother speak at the Capitol, and she said, "My son was killed twice. He was shot. He was shot in the head, and then his character was he he was just." There was character assassination after that. And I, in her pain, this was 12 years ago. So her son's situation was 12 years ago. And I thought, I'm just now entering this, this roiling turmoil that, that you can't sleep at night and you're, you know, you're having these very intense conversations. And, um, and I realized, wow, so many of my friends have been doing this for such a long time. And I think that was another piece is that I had friends speaking to me very clearly um, that didn't maybe feel free before this to, to call me up and say, yeah, did you talk about race at your dinner table? Mm. And no, I didn't. Well, why do you think that is, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I had some really good friends that were were speaking very clearly to me about where we've been as a community, but where we've been as evangelicals and as, you know, you and I occupy a lot of the same spaces, but I'm in a lot of different spaces in and out of a lot of different types of churches. And (laughs) I, in 2015, I really, we were beginning to talk more and more about racial reconciliation. I thought we were on the verge of something really breaking open uh, in the sense of of uh, reconciliation and revival. As I was learning about redlining and all these things, I thought, man, when certain Christian leaders get a hold of this, there's going to be just like, I I pictured foot washing ceremonies. (laughs) Yeah. 
Uh, I remember uh-huh. talking to some other friends about this, um, and I-, I thought that's where we're headed. And when we headed into something so completely not that, when my mm. um, I was being vilified for talking about, you know, some really basic p- aspects of social justice, um, that was, for me, I kind of, I tend towards grief, not anger, and I had to kind of go away for a minute. Yeah, it's it's been a journey here. Yeah. I am drawn to songwriters like Sarah who bear witness to what they're seeing and who do so by just noticing and observing in real time what's happening around them and where they live and who they're in relationship with. And the stories that come out of Sarah's work are really um, true stories. And you feel that in as a listener when you're listening to those songs. And it is an encouragement that in other places of our lives, like even if you're not a songwriter, that they're, um, that we bear witness to the light, that we are able to walk sometimes in places of shadow, but that we continue to bear witness to the light and how we see that showing up and where the good is is coming through, even in some of those dark places. So I am grateful for Sarah's work of noticing and of bearing witness to what is, and in hopes that um, there is more good that is still coming into view. I continue to see places in your songwriting and in what comes out to the rest of the world from your neighborhood, from your heart coming out of your neighborhood, are these songs that give us a lot of metaphor. They give us a lot of, you seem to, do you think in metaphors? Do you, have you practiced that or does that come natural to you? Because that, it really, you kind of give us something we can chew on or we can sit with. Uh, The fires, again, is such a great image, but I feel like with your work, you're pulling these things out of what you're seeing and what you're bearing witness to, and then you're putting them to these beautiful melodies that kind of tumble around (laughs) in me, you know, and shape my thoughts and impact my own grief and my own process and response. Thinking in metaphors, is this, has this always been the way for you? I think so. I mean, I think that um, you said something in your new book, which is beautiful, by the way. Thank you. Um, But you, you in passing, I think it starts the beginning, but you talk about, um, but trying to make simple explanations of complicated <laughs> feelings. And I think that would sum up my whole mm. goal or, or like what I, what gets me out of bed in the morning is how do I name all this stuff? You know, so I just have to, for my own sanity, I'm trying to name it all. And yes, metaphors bring me comfort. They help me arrange the chaos in my head. This, this album ended up being very, I, I referenced a lot of literary stories from William Faulkner to Kazuo Ishiguro. In this instance, I really look to the telltale heart, the story of this, oh, this wow. person that's trying to mm. act normally while there's, she's throwing a dinner party. She greets her guest at the door with a smile. She's worried, make sure the fork is on the left. She's worried about all these details. And then I just say, there are bodies in the basement you know, contrasting this sort of desire to sort of like, let's go along to get along. Let's, let's not remember all this stuff. Let's create softer stories that we can live with. And, um, and there's this testimony literally pounding through the floor. There are people actually taking the mic and saying, I did not experience this place. Mm -hmm. 
the way that you experienced it. And that's my testimony. So I play with faith language like testimony. And in a couple of the songs, I borrow some of that language, but to sort of reorient it to these, I don't know, to these spaces where the testimony is, it reminds me of when Brenda Salter McNeil, Dr. Dr. McNeil says, she wrote her book, Can I Get a Witness? And this is a phrase she grew up with. And then she realized one day that on this front of racial reconciliation, God is asking us, can I get a witness? <laughs> this isn't just a, this sort of phrase that passes every Sunday. He's asking, can I get a witness? Will anyone enter into this, this very hard space? Will you get low? Will you join the penitent? You know, so I was trying to, yeah, use, tap into stories that we already knew that might, oh yeah, this is like that. You know, we have this history that we can't, a lot of the record is also looking at the way we remember. And if, if we're telling different stories, how are we going to reconcile if we're, if we have such vastly different ideas about, about what happened? So I think those metaphors help me. I've had more resonant moments of learning through fiction than I have through like self-help or the more direct routes. Mm -hmm. But I've grown into that, Sandra. I think if you were to go back to my first album, I'm this very earnest, straightforward, (laughs) declarative, you know, voice. And that's been a part of my own journey as a, as an artist to kind of move more towards the things that teach me, you know? Well, that I mean, I think your your early songs. Um, I remember my sister gave me or pointed me to your first album, which really, I mean, they they felt like a, a friend sitting across the table, and I think the authenticity of that was a foundation for other work that later some of your songs that explore more. Um, abstract, different kind of brushstrokes, you know, if we were talking about painting. And it comes to mind the song called My Dream. The song stays with me partly because it leaves a lot of space for me to find myself in that song at different times and in different ways. You know, the, the chorus is, you're standing in the driveway as I come up the street. In the driveway as I come street I can tell by your movement you're not angry you are waiting there I need that song to not rhyme you know I need that chorus I need that chorus to feel like there's an ellipsis at the end and I need to live into those few bars before we get back. In. I mean, it's just, you know what I mean? There's a space that's created as your work goes on that was there in the beginning, but has matured and become richer over time. Well, I will say you have influenced me this way, friend. Mm. When you first came out and I was first exposed to your music and we were out on the road, there was something I, I was starting with the question, what is the faithful thing that I should write? You know, what is the faithful thing to do? And these days I'll tell people, I think I moved towards this place where God is inviting me. It's a lot like what you talk about in your book. God is inviting me into this real prayer life that is deeply confessional. It's a lot more like an AA meeting than this performative, not not that my early songs were only performative because I was very earnest and I was very much 
wanting a seeker and wanting to know and learn. And, and there was a just definitely a genuineness. But I think that as I, as I just experienced life and grew and as my faith grew, and I heard your music and, and other paid attention to what really moved me, you know, in music, then I started saying, oh, I, I want to leave some space here for the human, what it means to be human. And this is what, in my mind, Jesus came to be acquainted with our very unique experience of being human, you know, that, that God himself would enter into that is says something about it, that it has, it's valuable. It, it matters that we, that we really look at, at what's ha- actually happening, not just talk about what we think we are supposed to say. And I, again, not, it, there's a lot of good and stuff in there, but growing up Pentecostal and in a holiness movement, um, when you're trying to be holy without a history and a, and a background, we weren't really equipped with like confession and we weren't really equipped with a lot of talk or, or ideas around community either. So we were uh, alone, siloed, trying to be holy. <laughs> and that's, mm, right. that's kind of this place you find me moving songwriting wise into, okay, wait a minute. It's okay to be human and to just talk about what we experience here in a way that 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 is also faithful you know but this this song in particular is special to me and i have to tell you the reason it's probably so special but my granddad towards the end of his life was really hard of hearing and we would have family dinners you know um he lived in missouri so i didn't see him all the time but he and i were very close and because he couldn't hear the conversation when he wanted to talk, he would just start talking really loudly. And then the whole family would get quiet because here's our patriarch, here's our father speaking to us. And so it was, he was in his 90s and we were at the Christmas table and he's very quiet. And then he says, you know, when the house gets dark and everyone just gets quiet, you know, to listen to granddad. And he says, when the house gets dark these days, I'm beset with doubt, and I wonder how much is God going to, how is he putting up with me, and how much, you know, melancholy and all this, these things, and I wonder, have I been faithful? And I just, he said, I just have these ghosts move out of the walls, and I just feel, and here was my 90-something faithful grandfather telling me, I struggle, you know, as it gets dark in the house, I struggle. What is my life and have I been faithful with it? And he said, when I go to lie down at night, he said, for the last six months, when I close my eyes, he said, it's not a dream and it's not, I'm not just making it up. I see the father waiting in the driveway. I'm walking up a hill. I can tell by his movement he's not angry. And then I fall asleep. And I thought, Lord, thank you for, first of all, a grandfather who is also confessional and sharing with me the spectrum of even here at the end of my life, of a life of faith that I, I still struggle and wonder if I've, what have I done and have I done it well? And then that Jesus would comfort him, that he would close his eyes and have this vision of the Father receiving him. So I did try to be faithful to the way the story had come out. And I 
I give him in the notes, liner notes, writing credit. Um, <laughs> he's not signed up with ASCAP, so I didn't list him <laughs> as a co-writer. But but I, I felt like my job was just to faithfully capture this conversation. When he went to the car that day, my aunt Claudia, she looked at me and I said, did you hear that? You know, she, we were both just kind of misty-eyed. And she said, the thing about it is he was the driveway father to me. Oh, man. He waited in the driveway for me. And I thought, well, what a thing to wait in the driveway for our loved ones, you know, to stand there and, and not be angry and, and defensive. So, um, yeah, so that song is very special to me. I can tell This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At BOW, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. When I think about my own family story and the folklore of, of our own family, Sarah so beautifully and honestly describes the folklore of her own family and is able to to pull it apart and lay it out on the table and say, here's what I see. And it takes a lot of courage to do that. And I know, you know, even in my own upbringing, thinking about what are the words that we used? What are the ways that we cared for our neighbors or completely overlooked things that were going on right around us? And how did that shape who I am today? I think in the moment that we're in culturally, there's such pressure to respond in earnest or quickly to situations that are coming at us on news media or, you know, even in our our local communities, in our schools, in the news stories that are coming at 100 miles an hour. And the truth is, and one of the things we talk a lot about in these conversations is that the human story is slow and that it is complex. So if we really want to give ourselves to this slow work, we have to slow down long enough to listen to one another and to see the way the story is unfolding. Sometimes it's really unpleasant and sometimes it needs to be corrected. Sometimes it needs to be um, rebuilt. And whatever work there is for us to do, it's going to be patient work. 
So for me, the work has been to revisit family stories. Um, I had a story about my my great-grandfather was at Azusa Street, which is the birthplace of the Pentecostal movement in the U.S., 1914. So our story was he was the first church planter to come out of Azusa. But in a book on racial reconciliation and the Pentecostal church, um, these churches were the first example of white flight. So they were leaving to go become their ethnic groups. And within months of the revival beginning, which was, it was being led by a a black pastor, uh, within months, there was an Irish congregation and an Italian congregation. And my great granddad started the Swedish congregation. So where this had been a point of pride for us that he had planted this church and it's part of our family narrative. Well, reflecting back on it, William Seymour, who was the the African-American pastor of that movement, my granddad left saying the gift we were given in this revival was, was speaking in tongues and these sort of signs and wonders. William Seymour went to his grave saying, no, I think the miracle of this was that we were all together. And so I think reconciliation was the miracle of this movement, that at Pentecost, we were all together. And he went to his grave really going around church to church saying, don't you think the miracle was that we were worshiping together? So I've had to revisit a family story that shapes me. It's something that I, you know, that we're proud of. It's part of our identity. That's really powerful. It shows a lot of courage, and it is something that's hard to do. I think that's really hard for us to do it. And I know that anytime there's trauma or something, you know, in our story, we tend to try to manage it, bury it, you know, and I, and then you just transmit it, right? So it just comes out somewhere else if it's not addressed. That's what I see, and and so then. As hard as we try, the longer we live, the more places we're going to have to say, I'm sorry, you know, both what's happening in real time and everything that was back there that brought us to this point now, you know. And we we did this for so long. We said, if if my people are called by my name, we'll turn, you know, and repent. And it's interesting to me that we've, you know, that we've loved, we mm. love that one. <laughs> we love that verse. And and here's a moment to actually kind of like lean into that. Um, and I think this is, it's true. If we were to, you know, there's that great um, Robert Duvall movie, Get Low. It's time for us to get low <laughs> and join the penitent, you know? Yeah. What you're describing about actually revisiting family stories, that's going to be uncomfortable. And this is not something you're going to like post on your socials, right? You know, there's this process that you have to sort of grieve what's there. And whether that's research or a conversation or an illumination that happens, we don't leave that the same way. Like there's a change that happens in us because we know things we didn't know. We've, we've seen things we didn't know before. And that, and that's advocacy work at the core. I mean, that's the way I've heard you share the stories of injustice and rescue through International Justice Mission. And when you hear the story and you come up close to it and you bear witness to it, you know, you're compelled to then respond. So, And it can come out honestly that way. I think we're only just able to mm-hmm. show our work. <laughs> Here's the work I've been doing. This is what I'm learning. And yeah, just open our hands that way. Well, last question or thought, which is so connected to this, is like, um, and I don't even know how to frame this question, but 
how do we cultivate our imagination for a future that could be different? I mean, is it, mm. is it connected to this language or this practice of dreaming and, and noting and acknowledging our dreams? Is it connected to, I don't know, like how do we cultivate an imagination and a hope, you know, activate our hope? Man, that is a really good question. And right now I have myself and others around me are at a really critical point with, with that question. There is a real uh, sense of loss right now and in trying to find, you know that it's it's right and you don't want to substitute it with something that's sort of like, mm-hmm. again, performative. Uh, here's this performative mm-hmm. hope. So I've been asking myself that same question. I tell this story all the time, Sandra, so you'll forgive me if you've heard me say it. But the the cellist of Sarajevo, this story of this man who witnesses this horrific uh, tragedy, 22 people killed by a bomb, standing in line for bread, and they're killed by a stray bomb in, in the Bosnian War. And he puts on his tux and his, takes his cello and he crawls down into the crater. And as Charlie told this story to me, he said... It's easy to stand around the edge of the crater and talk about how deep it is and how wide and hmm. whose who's fault it is and how it got there. And he said, it takes a generative person to climb down in. And you and I have been, we've been able to bear witness to some generative people. You've met Wendell Berry, um, Makoto Fujimura, um, Miranda. I just found a note from Miranda oh. in my notebook the other day. And it's like, man, what a letter writer, what an encourager. Um Miranda Harris has spoken into your life in a tremendous way. So we've seen these generative people and we've watched them when they when they came upon something, they did dream. They did say, okay, what would I put here instead of instead of just sort of navel gazing and blaming and turning to there's so much anger to be had, and I have plenty of it. I have deep opinions and convictions. But I always want to ask myself when I'm troubled and and something is just sort of, I'm worrying it. All right, what do I make then? What do I, I'm crawling down into this crater and what do I want to put here? What kind of song do I want to come up (laughs) out of this moment? And in a way to have receipts for all this stuff that we would talk about, Eugene Peterson talks about the dreaded God talk. (laughs) And we can get stuck with all this sort of talk about the thing and talk about belief but then I want receipts. <laughs> I want to not be talking about anything that I'm not kind of like mm-hmm. working it out in my mm-hmm. embodied life. And for me, I don't know if songs count as embodiment, but for me, that is a part of my embodiment process, but my making process to say, all right, let my life go up like a song in a bomb crater. And all of us are surrounded by bomb craters and we all have that I do think there are times when I have to take a a rest, you know, and kind of like, give me a minute. (laughs) I've been, you know, uh, in that space maybe lately, but, um, but then I feel it. I feel that, that sense of like, really the only way forward is to once again, don my tuxedo and take my proverbial cello into that crater and, um, and to play a song. That's, that's what I think we're, we're called to do. As we have noted along the way, Sarah's work is generative. It's generative at the art house. It's generative in really investing in songwriters that are maybe just getting started. And I think about what that takes as a person. And then you look ahead at Sarah's work with Justice and I look back at the tours we did together with International Justice Mission and 
Sarah's care for others in the work is really noticeable. And as she tells her story and as she writes her songs, it is continuing to bear fruit. It's generative. I am convinced after hearing and seeing her work over these years that you cannot underestimate the power of beauty and of contributing back into places that are unfinished or when times are rough, that there is still a value in investing in beauty. Because God has made it to do this, beauty has the power to open our hearts to see something that we could not see before. And as she shares the story um, of the cellist, I think it really comes into view sharply, and it's a memorable story, and it's a difficult story. But it's really, I think, a reflection of her life's work in music. The Slow Work is a production of Christianity Today. Executive produced by Mike Cosper. Produced by Luke Bronner and Azure Phelps. Additional recording by Evan Redwine. Edited and mixed by Dan Phelps. Original music by Tyler Chester. Graphic design by Chris Bennett. And I'm your host, Sandra McCracken. Thanks again for listening.